Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Second Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> and we're going to kind of do uh, somewhat of an um, overview of uh, Peter's eschatology uh, in our study this morning. Uh, eschatology basically just means the study of the last times. And Peter has had a lot to say about that in chapter 3. So we're going to try to put some of it together uh, this morning and, uh, and see what we can glean about Peter's contribution to the study of prophecy and the end times. So that's, uh, that's kind of where we're going. So give me just a second. There we go. Okay, so I don't know how many of y'all like to work uh, jigsaw puzzles. Uh, some in uh, my extended family does. My sister-in-law, usually around the holidays, is always working on some massive jigsaw puzzle on uh, on a table. And uh, jigsaw puzzles are challenging because all the little pieces have their own separate little curves and bends and waves in them. And you got to take all these individual pieces and fit them together to one picture that's found on the box of the puzzle. So each piece, again, is uniquely cut. It uh, is designed to fit in just one particular place in the whole puzzle. And all those individual pieces should fit together to make this beautiful picture. It takes a lot of patience, a lot of time to make a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, but it's a lot of fun. In fact, during the uh, COVID years, uh, they say that there's been just a run on jigsaw puzzles because everyone's been spending so much time inside. They've been bored. So they've just sold a, a lot of jigsaw puzzles. Well, the reason why I bring that up is because the study of prophecy is kind of like working a jigsaw puzzle. So you have these thousands of verses in the Bible, which are all like individual pieces to a jigsaw puzzle. And they all must fit together to form one grand, beautiful picture, ultimately, of the coming of Jesus Christ and the events that surround it. Now, all these different pieces of the puzzle of prophecy, if you will, come from all portions of the Bible. The Old Testament prophets give us a lot of those individual pieces that we need to fit together. The Lord Jesus Christ gave us some. Paul gave us some. John gave us some. And Peter gave us some of the pieces of the puzzle. And all of them need to work together to form this one beautiful picture. Now, if you're working a jigsaw puzzle, and you've been at it for days, and you're fitting all the pieces together, and you finally decide you're going to look at the box, and you, and you came up with a picture totally different than what's on the box, something went wrong. And it's the same way with studying prophecy. That Bible students have taken the very same pieces of the puzzle, and they've put them together to form different pictures. They don't all agree as to the picture that all the pieces should fit together to, to form. So instead of forming one unified and beautiful picture of the second coming, uh, Bible students have put the pieces together and some of them come out as premillennial. 
Some others come, put it all together, all the pieces together, and they come out as post-millennial. And others come out as all-millennial. Using the very same pieces of the puzzle, but they arrange them differently. They put the pieces together differently and they come up with an entirely different view of how the end times are going to work their way out. So it's no small challenge to do this. Because there are thousands of pieces to the prophecy puzzle, if you will. And it's a, it's a challenge because there's only one true picture that all the pieces should fit into. And yet, godly men who love the Lord, uh, men of renown, scholars, do not agree on how the pieces fit together. So within the church, you're going to find many different views on eschatology. Uh, the elders of the church basically are in line with the all-millennial view, but we recognize that this is a secondary issue and we give everyone the right to study these things out and put the pieces of the puzzle together and come up with your own view and uh, hold that. But uh, what I want us to do this morning is to look at Peter's unique contribution to the study of the end times of eschatology and see what he has to contribute to an overarching view of prophecy. So let me uh, begin by just looking at verse 4 in Second Peter chapter 3. Let's remind ourselves verse 4 where Peter raises this issue Now, he's talked about the second coming in chapter 1, but now he's going to really dig into the second coming of Christ. And he's uh, dealing with the false prophets who were denying the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 3, he says, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their lusts, and saying... Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So the false teachers were denying the second coming. So Peter introduces their destructive heresy, as he calls it in verse 1 of chapter 2, and he's going to refute it. And We've been working through this for several weeks. So the second coming is going to be the dominant theme throughout the rest of chapter 3. So later on in verse 10, Peter will refer to the day of the Lord. That's the day of Jesus Christ. That's the second coming. He'll also refer to the day of God. And in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter is referred to Jesus as God. So the day of God is also a reference to the second coming. Most commentaries, at least that I read, certainly agree with that. And then in verse 18, the day of eternity is the day of Jesus Christ when He comes in and brings the eternal state. And all this is referencing the second coming. So with that in mind, let's let's review a few observations by way of review of what we have already seen that uh, Peter has said about the general theme of eschatology. So let's review verse 7, for example. 2 Peter 3, verse 7. Notice he says, But the present heavens and earth, 
by His Word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So notice he talks about the world, the present heavens and earth, are going to be destroyed with fire, but they are kept in their present condition until God judges the ungodly men. So the destruction of the world will take place at the same basic time as the judgment of ungodly people. Okay? Now that's very, very important because that will fit into some of the different pictures that people that put the puzzle pieces together come up with. So the world, the present heavens and earth, will be judged at the same time the ungodly will be judged. Okay? And that seems to be brought out of verse 7. Okay, so keep that in the back of your mind. The world and the ungodly will be judged at basically the same time. The second thing we've seen in verse 12 and 13 is that the creation and the godly will be glorified at the same time. So in verse 12, he says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. That's the second coming. And why are we looking for and hastening hastening uh, the coming of the day of God? Because that's when we get glorified. So throughout the Scriptures, we're waiting, we're looking for the coming of Jesus Christ because that's when we get transformed or the dead will be raised and we get glorified. So we're looking for the day of our glory. That's our blessed hope that Paul talks about. But the day of God has other things happening also. He goes on to say, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So when the Lord comes back, the second coming, also called the day of God, we look forward to it because that's when we get glorified. But also, verse 13, that's when the promise of the new heavens and the new earth takes place. So the world gets glorified as well at that same time. And all this seems to be linked to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So at the second coming, the world gets destroyed, the ungodly gets judged, the saints get glorified, and the world gets renewed into a new heavens and a new earth. And all of this, Peter has compacted within the event known as the second coming, or the day of the Lord, the day of God, the day of eternity. So, one other thing, you can just, I want to kind of bring in Paul here in Romans chapter 8 because he says the same thing in Romans 8 verse 19 about the creation and the godly are glorified together. In Romans eight nineteen, Paul says, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. So here is creation currently under the curse, currently in bondage to the curse of Adam's sin, but it's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. And that's a reference probably, I, I think, when Christ comes back and we're glorified into the fullness of being sons of God at that time. But creation is waiting for that day as well. 
Verse 21, the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation gets glorified when we get glorified. And I think Paul is saying that here in Romans chapter 8. Okay, so those are a few observations from 2 Peter 3 with a little help from Paul. But uh, keep that in mind now as we begin to look at some of the different pictures that people have come up with of the future based on trying to fit all the puzzle pieces together. The first one we want to look at is dispensational premillennialism. Now, I tried to put uh, a graph up to give you kind of a highlight of uh, the way things are supposed to happen. So notice we have Israel as God's Old Testament people. God sent the Messiah. They rejected the Messiah. They crucified their own Messiah. So God brought Israel's program to a halt. And then He brings in the church age because the church is a second distinct people of God. And we're in the church age now until the rapture will come. Christ will descend down in the clouds. All the Christians in the church will be raptured up to meet Him. Then we go back up into heaven for a seven year period. Seven years of tribulation which many understand to be the fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week. Daniel chapter 9. And then at the end of that seven year period, the second coming occurs. And then there's a thousand year millennial kingdom. And then there's a great white throne judgment. That's the little chair there with GWT, great white throne. And that's when there's a general resurrection of the dead and the ungodly will be cast into the lake of fire. And then the little red flame, that's the destruction of the heavens and the earth that Peter talks about. And then the new heavens and the new earth is the eternal state. Now, how many of y'all were taught or, or been exposed to this particular view? So a lot of us have. I was. I went to the seminary that championed this view, Dallas Theological Seminary. Peter doesn't say much about the rapture or about these kinds of things except... He does seem to throw a monkey wrench in the distinction between Israel and the church, which is vital for dispensationalism. You've got to have two peoples of God. And the reason for the pre-trib rapture is you've got to get the church age to come to an end by rapturing all the, the Christians off the earth so God can jumpstart Israel's program for that last seven years. You've got to have two peoples of God for dispensationalism to work. And by the way, let me just say, um, if you don't know what in the world I'm talking about, uh, just bear with me and, and, uh, and hang in there and hopefully you'll get some general idea of some of the different views. Because I realize that a lot of people are not interested or they've never really studied eschatology. So I may have already lost you already. But just hang in there. I'm going to try to do an overview. And if nothing else, you can, you can uh, hopefully remember a few things that we go over. This two people of God, Israel and the church, two separate peoples of God, different covenants, different promises of God is vital for dispensationalism. Peter seems to undermine that back in 1 Peter 2.9. When he speaks to the church, 
And he describes him using the Old Testament language of Israel. This is huge. Because he's describing the church as a new covenant Israel. So there's continuity. There's one people of God, not two separate and distinct peoples of God. So to the church, quoting from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, he says to the New Testament church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's the language that was used of Israel in the Mosaic Covenant and in other places. But now it applies to the church. So there's not this radical distinction between Israel and the church. So there's more of a continuity so that the church today is a new covenant Israel. That's what Peter seems to say. But he really doesn't get into all of this uh, other stuff of dispensationalism so much. But the two people of God Israel and the church age being two separate peoples of God, I don't think Peter would agree with that. Just based upon what he says in 1 Peter 2.9. So let's take out the dispensationalism and go to the bigger picture of just premillennialism. And uh, this would be more historic premillennialism or covenantal premillennialism. And let's see what, what we can glean from this. Okay, in this particular understanding, you have the church age, which is now, you have the second coming of Jesus Christ, and then there's a thousand year millennial kingdom, and this is based on Revelation 20, that the way they understand it, chapter 19 of Revelation is the second coming of Christ, then the first six verses of chapter 20 of Revelation is a thousand year binding of Satan and reign of the saints with Christ. Verses 7 through 10, you have the war of Gog and Magog, and then you have the great white throne judgment at the end. So after the second coming, you have this thousand year millennial kingdom on earth. And Christ is going to reign for a thousand years on the earth. Dispensationalists say Israel is elevated over all the nations. Just historic premillennialism just says that Christ reigns over the saints on earth for a thousand years. Then you have the great white throne judgment, the destruction of the heavens and the earth, and the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, several several observations about this. Uh, one of the problems that we have, that I have, and others have with this particular view, is uh, notice where they put the judgment. They put the judgment a thousand years after the second coming. So the ungodly are judged at the great white throne judgment a thousand years after Jesus Christ comes back. Now what did Peter already line up for us? that the ungodly are judged at the second coming. So when you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, the great white throne judgment should be right there at the second coming, not a thousand years later, according to 2 Peter uh, chapter 3. So if Peter, as he's looking down through the ages as God has revealed to him these prophetic insights of the second coming, he says nothing at all about a thousand year millennial kingdom separating 
the second coming and the judgment of the ungodly. If he believed it, he should have he could have indicated it here, but he doesn't say a word. He just skips right over it as if it didn't exist. So Peter does not have a view of a thousand year millennial kingdom on earth. When he looks at the second coming, he sees the judgment of the ungodly and the new heavens and the new earth. It's all connected right there. He doesn't see that thousand year millennial kingdom. Now granted, we're just primarily looking at the puzzle pieces that come from Peter and a few I'm going to spice in from Paul. So you got thousands of other verses, okay? So you can look at, there's many other verses of Scripture to fit into the puzzle to try to form this picture. But Peter sees the destruction of the ungodly at the second coming, not a thousand years later. Now again, let me just throw in Paul again just to show you that this is something that Paul and Peter agree. So all the, all the authors of Scripture agree with this one picture. We're just trying to figure out what they're saying, right? But look at what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So he's talking to the church. They're undergoing persecution. And he's telling them, okay, you're, God's going to give you relief. Okay? Now you might think, okay, well this must be a pre-trib rapture that he's talking about. That's when the church is going to be delivered from the persecution, be raptured up so they don't have to go through the great tribulation. That's not what Paul says at all. Let's, let's read on. He will give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the Gospel of the Lord Jesus. So the relief comes not at a pre-tribulational rapture, but it comes at the second coming when Christ comes to judge the ungodly. That's when the believers get their relief. No idea of a pre-trib rapture here at all. Not found in this passage. The relief comes at the second coming when Christ comes, when He's revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, flaming fire, dealing out punishment and retribution to the ungodly. Verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints. So here's another idea. Jesus Christ comes, second coming. He judges the ungodly. He glorifies the saints. Both of those events take place when He comes with retribution to punish the ungodly. That's Paul's view. That's Peter's view. So Peter and Paul agree. So if you look at a chart of what we just read from 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul says, when Christ comes, He will judge the ungodly and glorify the saints at that time. Okay, remember what premillennialism does. The judgment of the ungodly is a thousand years later. It's a thousand years later. It just doesn't seem to fit in my understanding of this particular view. So when you look at the premillennialism, the great white throne judgment when the, when the ungodly are judged is separated from the second coming by a thousand years. Another issue I have with this is that 
the thousand-year millennial kingdom on earth, according to premillennialism, is supposedly the fulfillment of all of these land promises in the Old Testament given to Abraham. So within the Abrahamic covenant, God gave Abraham the land. The premillennialists say that those promises were not fulfilled so far. So they will be fulfilled in a thousand year millennial kingdom when Christ will reign on this earth and uh, He'll rule over His people for a thousand years. And that's when the Lamb promises find their fulfillment. Okay, let's just look at this for a second. How did Peter understand that kingdom? How did he understand the promises of God in this regard? Well, in 2 Peter 1.11... Peter writes about that in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So when he's thinking about the kingdom of Christ, he's not thinking about it being a thousand years in duration. It's an eternal kingdom. So he doesn't say anything about it being a thousand year kingdom on this earth. It's an eternal kingdom. And when you think about this, Let's go all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant when God gave those land promises to Abraham. I want you to notice something. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 13, verse 15. Notice, God is telling Abraham that He's going to give him this land. Notice what He says. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants for how long? Huh? Forever. Not a thousand years. He's going to give it to him forever. And then look at chapter 17, verse 8. God again repeats to Abraham, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for how long of a possession? Everlasting. Not a thousand years. An everlasting possession. And I will be their God, he says. Well, let's look later on when God speaks to Moses and he says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Not a thousand years but forever. God spoke to David. said the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Not a thousand years, but forever. Isaiah, the great prophet, said then all your people will be righteous and they will possess the land forever. And finally, Jeremiah 25, verse 5, Turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given you and your forefathers forever and ever. So the land promises were not given to Abraham for a thousand years or a finite period of time. The land promises were given to Abraham for an everlasting possession that he would have forever and ever. Well, how do you think Abraham understood 
this particular promise? Well, the author of Hebrews gives us some idea when he says, By faith, he, that be Abraham, lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. In other words, Abraham saw the land promise as a down payment, if you will, or a type of its glorious fulfillment, I think, on the new earth. It's the land. It's going to be on the earth, but it's going to be on the new earth, not this earth. And it won't last for a thousand years. It'll be the everlasting dwelling place of God's people on the new earth. So he was looking for a city that would be the new Jerusalem which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Not a man-made city, but a city made by God where they will dwell forever. And then drop down a few verses. Hebrews 11 verse 16. But as it is, they, the patriarchs, desire a better country that is a heavenly one Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So they have a heavenly land with a heavenly city made by God, which is what Abraham and the patriarchs ultimately were looking forward to. And the physical land of Canaan, they understood as a foretaste, a down payment, if you will, a type of the coming glory of that promise being fulfilled forever and ever. See, the land promise is forever. You will dwell in it forever and ever. That can only be fulfilled on the new earth. It can't be fulfilled in a thousand year period on, on this earth. So, when you come back to premillennialism, that thousand year millennial kingdom isn't really going to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament land promises made to Abraham. Because those are going to be forever. An everlasting kingdom. Not just for a thousand years. So to me, that, that piece of the puzzle seems like you're forcing it into the picture. If you, if you try to insert a thousand year millennial kingdom from Revelation chapter 20 at this point. Also, if you look at what Peter says in Second Peter Chapter 3, verse 13. When Christ comes, Peter writes, but according to His promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So if Peter was a premillennialist, he absolutely said nothing about a thousand year millennial reign on this earth. Nothing. As if, it's as if it didn't even exist because when when Peter looks at the future, he sees Christ coming and a new heavens and a new earth. Not a word about a premillennial kingdom. By the way, premillennialism gets its name that Christ comes pre or before the millennium. Just a way of, uh, forgot to mention that earlier on. But I don't think Peter uh, saw any kind of a millennial reign after the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's another issue that I have with this also is if you look at 
the uh, premillennial kingdom, a premillennialism, that thousand-year millennial kingdom on earth is a reign of righteousness and peace. Christ is ruling on this earth. There's incredible righteousness, peace, prosperity throughout the land. There is a revolt at the very end, but it's a kingdom of righteousness. That's how it's described in the Old Testament. But that's not how Peter sees that coming righteousness being fulfilled. Where does he say the righteousness will dwell? In the new heavens and the new earth. That's where the righteousness of that kingdom is being identified. That's what he sees. This coming age of righteousness that Christ will bring is associated with the new heavens and the new earth. That's Peter's view. So the idea of trying to put it as a thousand year millennial kingdom where righteousness and peace will rule, when Peter overlooks that and puts the righteousness in the new heavens and the new earth. So again, that seems to be somewhat, uh, doesn't seem to fit in my two cents worth. Okay, uh, so some of the some of the issues of premillennialism again, many good godly people that I love, John MacArthur, for example, is a dispensational premillennialism. Uh, I used to be that. I'm not that. Haven't been that for a long, long time. But many godly people will hold to all of these views. So it's not a matter of uh, being judgmental on their spiritual status because godly people hold hold all of these views. Uh, and I was taught the premillennial view and um, and believed it myself and and taught it myself uh, for a period of time. But it doesn't seem the more I've studied it, uh, the more it seems like some of the pieces of the puzzle seem to be forced into their positions to come up with that picture. Well, let me uh, move on now to uh, postmillennialism. So. Notice the difference from premillennialism and postmillennialism. Notice with premillennialism, Christ came before the thousand year kingdom on earth. Postmillennialism teaches that Christ comes after the thousand year millennium on this earth. Though they don't, they don't limit the thousand years to a literal thousand years, it's a figurative thousand years. So postmillennialism believes it's a very um, optimistic view of the future. If I had one that my heart gravitates toward, I, I would I would love for postmillennialism to be right. Uh, I I have my my doubts, but that's my conviction. But I, I love the idea of postmillennialism that the Great Commission will literally be fulfilled. What's the Great Commission? Go out into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, right? Well, they believe that's actually going to take place. And through the, the preaching of the gospel over the years and decades and centuries, the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, will bring more and more of the population of earth to saving faith. Not that everybody gets saved, but the vast majority will come under the regenerating work of God and they'll come to faith and be followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. 
The gospel will, will spread uh, gradually throughout the world. So again, the vast majority will become Christians. And it will usher in a golden age of righteousness and justice and peace and prosperity on the earth. And post-millennialists link this thousand-year kingdom and reign with, uh, with, with it occurring before the second coming. So Christ comes after this golden age of righteousness on this earth. Uh, I would love that. I would love to see the gospel gradually go forth and, and claim the, the majority of people so that culture is changed, governments are revitalized and brought in line with biblical morality, uh, the righteousness of, of uh, God's grace is spread throughout the majority. It, w- it would be a wonderful thing to, to experience. Uh, so when someone ran for office, uh, everybody would vote for the same person because everyone's hearts would be united in that thing. But uh, but this is something that uh, is certainly a very optimistic view of the future. Uh, again, Christ will come at the end of this millennial period. So again, it's called post-millennialism. Uh, some of the problems I have with this is number one, if you're linking this kingdom age with the Old Testament promises, with Psalm 2 and the Davidic reign of Christ and the land promises, all this kind of wrapped up, again, you run into problems because those land promises in that kingdom is going to be an everlasting possession, not limited to a thousand. Even if it's a figurative thousand years, maybe it's 1,500 or 2,000 or whoever, however long it ends up being, but it's the Scriptures speak of the Lamb promise being an everlasting possession. So again, I would have the same problem with this that I had with premillennialism. If you're talking about the Davidic kingdom on earth being for a thousand years, literal or figurative, it's not. It's forever. The Lamb promises are forever which make me think it's going to be fulfilled on the new earth, not in some period prior to that. Uh, also, with, pre, with a post-millennialism, this golden age picture, as attractive as it is, and a, as uh, incredibly wonderful it would be if it came to pass, uh, in my view, doesn't fit with the overall general description of this age. Uh, Peter in his first letter, as you saw as we worked through 1 Peter, was all about the suffering nature of the church in this age. Uh, It was something that he was equipping them to, if you're persecuted, to rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. And when Christ is revealed at the second coming, then you'll be rewarded. Well, it seems like that that's going to characterize the whole age particularly like in 1 Peter chapter 4. So this idea of things getting glorious and righteous and, and no persecution doesn't seem to be in Peter's purview the, of the future. Also, Second Peter has been emphasizing the ongoing threat of false teachers. And he doesn't say that there'll come a time when that, when that threat will end. 
But he says, in fact, they're going to be denying the second coming up until the time Christ comes and then they will be judged. So the whole notion of the false teachers in Second Peter doesn't seem to... Peter doesn't have the idea that eventually that will fade away because of this kingdom of righteousness that will eventually uh, grow on the earth. Also, if you look at Paul in Romans chapter 8, he says that we and creation are groaning. We are groaning under the fall. We're groaning under the curse and sin. And creation and the saints will be groaning until Christ comes back and we are set free. So again, there's a, there's a groaning to glory. So in Romans 8, Paul doesn't really even envision that there will be a golden age of righteousness where the groaning will stop on this earth prior to Christ's coming. That seems problematic to me as well. And also in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul describes a constant ongoing persecution that will seem to describe the church in this age. Christ in His parable of the tares said that the tares will be sown among the wheat and they will exist alongside God's people until the end of the age. So that doesn't seem to indicate that the, that the tares will be so outnumbered by the wheat that basically they'll be so reduced in number as they won't have much influence. The parable of the tares doesn't suggest that at all. They both grow side by side throughout the age until Christ comes back. So that parable to me doesn't support a post-millennial view either. Also, if you look at what Peter says in uh, Acts chapter 3, it's, it's an interesting passage which fits with his view of eschatology. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter says, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Those times of refreshing could refer to just spiritual refreshing of a variety of things that the Lord can do throughout the age to encourage His people, to support and empower His people. Uh, but there's no great necessary implication of a golden age. But let's read on. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. So this is the second coming. God will send Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from the ancient times. So all the Old Testament prophets prophesied of this great period of restoration. They're not talking about a post-millennial view where this age will gradually will have a kingdom of righteousness. No, that, that period of restoration comes when Jesus comes back. Okay, It doesn't come first and then Christ comes back. The period of restoration of all things occurs when Jesus Himself comes back. That's the destruction of the present heavens and earth. The creation of a new heavens and a new earth at the second coming. That lines up with what Peter has already taught us in 2 Peter chapter 3. So I, I love my pre-millennial and post-millennial brethren. They may be right. I could certainly be wrong. But uh, there's enough issues in there where I'm not comfortable with how they're fitting the pieces of the puzzle together. So that brings us finally and quickly 
to the last view. And uh, this, this was Peter. No one's laughing. I'm trying. I thought that would be a good. Okay, so this is the all millennial view. This is the view that I favor. But the thousand year millennial reign of Revelation chapter 20 is not an earthly reign, it's not an earthly kingdom. According to the all millennial, it's actually the saints in heaven will reign for a thousand years. Uh, like the post-millennialists, it's a figurative thousand years. It's interesting, every time you look up a thousand years or a thousand generations in the Bible, it's always used figuratively. It's never used literally. It's only used about six or seven times in the whole Bible. You get a concordance out and check it out. But the saints are now reigning with Christ in heaven. Because Revelation chapter 20 says the souls of the beheaded will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Those are souls. Those aren't people living on this earth. Those are people who have died. And their souls are now reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Satan has been bound since the time of the cross. That's when the thousand years began. But it's not a complete total binding of Satan like most people think that, well, then Satan has no influence at all in the world. Is that what you're saying? He has a ton of influence. But in Revelation 20, the binding is so that he might no longer deceive the nations. And so what do you see in the book of Acts? The gospel now goes beyond the boundaries of Israel to the nations. And Gentiles now start flooding into the church. And that's the nature of the binding. It's not a universal binding where Satan has no... He has great influence in the world today. But he cannot dominate the world to keep them from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. God is saving and the church is comprised mainly of people from the nations today. So that's how they see that being fulfilled. Notice, at the end of this age, Christ comes back. You have the great white throne judgment, the destruction of the ungodly. You have the destruction of the heavens and the earth, the red flame. And then you have the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And what supports this, I think, is that's when this golden age of righteousness will occur. It's not before the second coming as post-millennialists believe, but it's actually after the second coming when God creates the new heavens and the new earth. By the way, did you notice again in verse 13? Where am I? Well, just look in your Bible at 2 Peter 3, verse 13 again. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So when Peter is looking to the future, and he's seeing a golden age of righteousness, he doesn't put it before the second coming. That would be the post-millennial view. He doesn't put it as a thousand years after the second coming. That would be the premillennial view. But he puts it in conjunction with the coming of Jesus Christ. The new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. That's where all those promises of the, of the kingdom of righteousness and peace will be fulfilled on the new earth. That's where the land promises for an everlasting inheritance will be fulfilled on the new earth. That's our eternal state. So that's the uh, all-millennial view. 
Oh, you found it in the back. Thank you. The second Peter three, uh, verse 13. So you try to put all these pieces together and it seems to me that the uh, all millennial view uh, seems to do the best job. I think all those views have their problem verses. Uh, but in my mind, the all-millennial view has fewer problems than some of the others. But regardless of which view you uh, ascribe to, you may totally differ with me, and that's totally fine uh, with your view of eschatology. The point is that Peter's ultimately making is whether you're pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill, or dispensational pre-mill, your view of eschatology is designed to impact the way we live now. This is what we saw last week. Remember, if you look back up at Second Peter 3, verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. In other words, your view of eschatology is not just about trying to figure out how things are going to fit together in the future. Uh, I've got a lot of pieces in my uh, understanding of eschatology that I'm not sure how they fit together. But regardless of your view of eschatology, it's designed to impact us today with the reality that we should all agree on that Jesus Christ is coming back. And when He comes back, that will be glorious. And we'll have the new heavens and the new earth, however, wherever you place that at. But we will be with Christ forever in glory. And this is such an incredible future that every believer has. That Peter says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, Since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. So Peter ends his whole discussion of eschatology, the second coming, new heavens and new earth, judgment of the ungodly, judgment of the present heavens and earth, with this motivation of exhortation again, to be diligently found in peace, spotless and blameless, looking for the coming of Christ. That's the impact of it. Regardless of your view that you end up with, Peter says, looking for the new heavens and the new earth, looking for that day of glory, looking for that world of perfection, looking for that world of righteousness to come, let it impact you and motivate you today. Not to be a slave to this world because the things of this world will not last. So live your life for that which will and seek to to live a life that honors the Lord. He says be diligent because oftentimes we become idle or inactive or lazy. But Peter said with diligence, this is a word he's loved and, and used a lot in 2 Peter chapter 1 but diligently commit yourselves to live a life today in the shadow of the glory that awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth. Don't just sit back and wait for God to make you godly. Don't have the attitude of God wants me to be holy today, He will make me holy. Peter says, no, be diligent. 
Commit yourself. Structure your life so that those spiritual disciplines become a natural, normal part of the way you live. Spending time in Scripture. Spending time in prayer. Spending time in worship. Studying the Word of God. Sharing your faith with others. Be diligent to be found in Him. In peace. Some translations put peace at the end. But be known for being a peaceful person. We have peace with God, but let peace rule in your hearts. Christ is the Prince of Peace. Christ tells us to be peacemakers. Be known for someone who loves a peaceful life. Be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, which is peace. Don't be always at odds with everything in the world and be fighting everything. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's what Paul exhorts in Colossians 3.15. And he says, be spotless and blameless. Continue to fight against sin because one day we're going to have an audience with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. One day we're going to stand in His presence. And we want to present our life to Him as a life that brought Him glory and honor. And Peter says, strive diligently for a spotless and a blameless life. You know those same two words are used of Christ earlier? And what Peter is saying, strive to be like Christ. Spotless and blameless. It doesn't mean we can be sinless, but continue to repent of sin. Continue to fight against your sin. Strive to be spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. This is a time for sinners to hear the Gospel. This is a time for people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is the mission of the church is to go out into all the world to declare the Gospel of Jesus Christ because one day Christ is coming and He will judge and condemn the ungodly and send them to the lake of fire and He'll glorify the saints. Now is the time to repent. It will be too late when He comes. So now is the day to proclaim the Gospel to the world. And the delay of Christ in coming back is His patience as He is saving the elect still scattered throughout the world. And He sends the church out with the Gospel to preach it to those who need to hear it. So Peter again summarizes and wraps up his view of eschatology with that practical note that those who will inherit the new earth are those who have the new heart. They have the new birth. They and they alone are the ones who will inherit the new earth. And the new heart and the new birth will be evidenced by our desiring to live in peace, spotless and blameless before the Lord. So those who look forward to living on the new earth where righteousness dwells ought to practice that righteousness now. I think that's what Peter is encouraging us to do. And if that is the hope of your heart, or if you're looking for and hastening the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, may that motivate us today to live today in light of the future that we might live a life that brings honor and glory to Him. That's Peter's heart. And may that lesson sink deep into our heart as well. Well, you've been very patient. And uh, if you disagree with me, that is totally fine. Uh, We love one another within the body of Christ. And there are many different convictions by many godly people. 
So hopefully you've at least had some overview and you can tuck it away and uh, maybe give you some scaffolding to hang some of those uh, verses on as you continue to read and study the Scriptures on your own. So let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, that we can grapple with trying to fit together the pieces of the puzzle to make sense of it and to understand the glorious picture that You have predestined for the future. And Lord, whether we understand or get correct all the individual pieces of the puzzle of eschatology, Lord, the one truth should be embraced by every believer, and that is one day, Lord, You will come back. And may that reality, may that truth make us think about how we're living today. May it sanctify our goals, our aspirations, the passions of our heart, that we might live it out for Your glory, for Your honor, knowing that one day You will come back. And, and Lord, may that be our blessed hope. May we look for that day. May we long for that day. And may we strive by the power of the Spirit to live godly today, awaiting Your return when we will see You face to face. So Lord, uh, continue to bless us. May Your Word bear fruit in our hearts and lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.